0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host,
1: Kevin Tofel.
0: And we're so glad Kevin is back this week because yeah. we have a lot of news to talk about.
1: Yeah, I was I was zipping around London last week. Had a blast. Went to Abbey Road Studios and all.
0: And this is all part of your new gig that we should tell everyone about.
1: Well, Abbey Road Studios was not part of the tour. <laughs> but yes, I do have a new gig and actually just announced it today, the day we're recording the show. I am going to be... Well, no, I am. I am working for Google, of all places. The Google. I can't really say what I'm doing, though. Obviously, it's cool stuff. Uh, but yeah, so I was in London at a Google event last week, and that's why I was not on the show. And I hear that you had Mr. Mike Wolf, a former colleague of ours.
0: I did. And we talked about all kinds of fun stuff. So,
1: yeah,
0: cool. so some of the topics will be revisited today, such as robotic bartending, or mm-hmm. rather, alcohol. So <laughs> this week's show, we've got... We've got to talk about the stuff at Nest, and Kevin's going to be very clear (laughs) about what he can and cannot say. We're going to be talking about some drama at If This Then That. We're going to be talking about the August doorbell camera, the June oven, and Amazon. Lots of stuff happening with Amazon, as always. As
1: always, yep.
0: And our guest this week is Bo Woods, who's with the Atlantic Council. And Bo is also part of a group called I Am The Calvary, and they are releasing recommendations for security in the smart home. So Yay. stay tuned if security is your bag.
1: Love I those check. folks. I do too. Love those oh, folks. Oh, is that, is
0: that your applause for them?
1: That's, well, I, didn't, I don't know how loud it is because I've never done applause on air like this. But yes, that was my applause.
0: That was excellent. Golf clap. Golf clap. So let's start with Nest. So Thursday, the day our podcast aired, a website called The Information published a story that, wow, dropped a bomb. Mm-hmm. It talked about and had an interview with Tony Fidel, the CEO of Nest, the exodus of over 500 employees at the company, why Nest has not managed to introduce new po- products in the two years that it's been since Google has purchased it, and kind of laid bare a management style that is, I don't know, how would you describe mm.
1: it? Uh, you know, and and this is all just so people are clear, I don't know anything about this internally at Google. So this is just speculation and observation on my part. But to answer your question, I'd say fairly controlling, fairly controlling. I mean, um, Tony Fidel came from Apple, which control is is a standard operating procedure. tight controls over hardware, software and messaging, uh, you know messaging about about products and such. and it's uh, based on the information story, and they're they're a pretty solid outlets, so i don't I don't doubt their sources or anything. Um, it seems like Maybe things are too controlling over there. I don't know.
0: Yeah, now, I will I will say that I had been hearing these rumors and seeing people leaving from Nest for quite some time. I, unfortunately, didn't have, A, the access that these guys got with Mr. Fidel, but also didn't have kind of the time to delve into this. But, man, I have no reason to doubt the story because it jives completely with what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would also say from all of this that there's a couple lessons we should probably take from this one it explains to me totally why there are two totally different protocols called weave one from Google and one from Nest because it sounds like the people at Google are not really working with the people at Nest there's a little anecdote in there that Google is building an Amazon Echo type device and the Nest team was like hey we went in on that and the Google team was like eh no thanks so that feels pretty damning.
1: Mm. The other bit to this was the Dropcam part.
0: Yes. So,
1: and that's kind of surprising to hear. Uh, who Who is the uh, person over there? It's Greg Duffy?
0: Greg Duffy. So yeah. Nest had purchased Dropcam about six months after Google had purchased Nest. And they kind of lumped those two together. Mm-hmm. And basically, when Greg Duffy, the CEO of Dropcam left, everyone was kind of shocked. And there were rumors at that time that like, Nest wanted to put out this video camera, and it wasn't going well. And everybody hated working there. And they were like, people were crying and working a lot of hours. And it was just bad scene. And now for the information story, Duffy actually talked to them. And he explained a lot of things like, you know, how Tony Fidel treated him, maybe not how someone who had previously run a company would want to be treated. And then today on Tuesday, Duffy actually posted something on Medium that said, Hey, that story. I just want to say that my employees were great because Tony Fidel had insulted the drop cam employees in the story. Mm-hmm. And he went on further and said that most of Nest's successes from the previous earnings report were actually drop cam successes, which seems like a pretty big kind of grenade to lob in the
1: middle of this fight it's getting ugly i mean i I don't know if this is going to continue or not i hope it doesn't but both pieces of the story are you're right lobbing grenades and and it's just not not pretty
0: it does show though how tough it is to make a smart home device because tony fidel has for years been a proponent of the intuitive and responsive home As opposed to everybody else who's trying to pitch these like programmatic homes where you're like, I will tell my lights to turn off at 10. Fidel's vision has always been that he wants your devices to react to you. And Nest was very much part of that. I think, though, as the space kind of heated up, it became more and more difficult to control all of that because at its core... Nest can't be a platform, it has to be an ecosystem. And I think it's hard for someone who's that controlling to open up and let that happen.
1: And, and we've talked about this before, I mean, to, to your point about that it's difficult to make a device these days. There's so much change going on between protocols and radio technology and dealing with people's privacy and security issues, which are certainly valid, and, and then opening things up to third party developers, do you or don't you, And and how do you do it if you're going to do it. This is not a revolution that's going to happen in a short amount of time. And I know that sounds obvious, because in a sense, Stacey, you and I have been watching it go on for several years now. But this really does speak to the difficulty of it, and why things are not as quick as they could be. You've got people such as, say, Apple, who are want to control everything down to the security chip and such. I mean, there's so many moving parts, and everybody wants to, to control and own bits of it. It's, it's very, very frustrating.
0: Incredibly. And I would say that I would love it to be more like the internet. Common protocols, everybody works together, but it's so far not that way. I don't know if it'll ever be that way. And that's why we're going to always have these bridge services. Bridge services like... (laughs)
1: <laughs> if this then that are you thinking?
0: I am. <laughs> I thought that was so graceful.
1: That's an awesome segue.
0: So let's talk about what's happening with if this then that.
1: Uh, I'm I'm sighing again because now it's it's more kind of bad news, so to speak.
0: It is. We've got some good news coming up. Don't worry, guys. Oh yeah, yeah. So here's what happened. A service called Pinboard, which is owned and created by one developer, they call it social bookmarking for introverts. You you tag you tag something, you favorite something and or you save it for later, like any article or what you like on the web. It costs 11 bucks a year. It's a cool service. A lot of people apparently love it. And what happened was the developer wrote a post when If This Then That said, hey, you know, your Ift integration is going to break on April 4th. And surprise, if, was, uh, <laughs> surprise, if you want it to keep working, you're going to have to develop something with the new code that we're releasing. And the developer was like, yeah, you know what? No." And then I guess he (laughs) had some back and forth with if this and that, because a second post that went up, I believe on Monday, talked about and and got some play. It was like, yeah, so here's all the things I find wrong with this. So and I think it's because his users were like, hey, if to saying our stuff is going to break, what's happening? Mm -hmm. And basically, this is a tough thing because the developer Mm -hmm. is totally right in saying, yeah, um. I think it's great that you did this integration to my service so many years ago, but now that you want me to develop it for you because you're turning that perfectly fine working one off, I'm just not going to do it. I totally get that perspective.
1: I do too. And, you know, services mature and change and, and there's infrastructure changes to make things better. And I presume that's what's happening with If This Then That. But I'm, I'm looking at the the note from the pinboard developer and he's saying, you know, Sites that want to work with if this, then that will have to implement a private API that can change without warning. Now, you know, and he says, I'm all for glue services, big and small. And that's exactly what if this, then that is to glue service. It's great. You can put plug pieces in and make things work together. And he says it's better for the web that they connect to stable, documented public APIs rather than custom private ones. And I get that. I mean, that's...
0: That's the ideal. That's kind of part of that whole ecosystem effort we're thinking about. Yeah. So I reached out to Lyndon Tibbetts, who is the CEO and founder of If This Then That. And I was like, Lyndon... Here are a couple questions I have for you, one of which was, what's up with this? Mm-hmm. And he, he responded back via email that he says, we are working with Pinboard to find the right steps. Our intention is not to kick anyone off our platform. Rather, we want to do everything we can to help partners take ownership of their channel, and improve it over time. But in his argument is, in his statement, we simply cannot maintain, improve, and make each of these channels great without the help of the services themselves. We could have done a much better job in communicating this desire for change in ownership with both Pinboard and our users. So he's saying they have over 300 channels on If This and That today. They want to have thousands, and they can't support this without people's help. And I also get that. Mm -hmm. Now... There's some stuff in, in the post about the developer terms of service where basically all of the data that a developer mm-hmm. has goes into if this and that. What I started looking at with this, actually, as a user of if this and that, was the personal, like the consumer terms and services. Because in reading those, it looks like if this and that takes my data and it puts information about me and all of the things that I'm using with that, it stores all that information in a folder associated with my name and account. So it's personally identifiable. Mm-hmm. And they say they don't share it unless they've got law enforcement or legal processes, which I believe would mean a subpoena, even in a a civil case. Now it does say or when it's necessary to do so to protect the rights and property of IFT or others. But a couple paragraphs later, in those same terms and conditions, it says quote, we may share our data, including personal information about you with our partners and joint ventures in furtherance of our business, unquote.
1: That's a little contradictory.
0: Yeah. And I asked Lyndon about that, and he didn't actually respond to that particular question. Mm. So, hmm. yeah. And, you know, they have to monetize. And for the last year and a half, they've been working with third parties, so like companies like Pinboard, except companies that want to be associated with IFT, and they've been making those companies develop their own API integrations for if this than that. Mm -hmm. So it's been something that's been happening for a while. But the fact that they're going to turn off the quote unquote free or the early versions that they built up to like establish the platform among users is kind of what's upsetting.
1: That's upsetting as well as I and I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm wondering how much advance notice that they gave to certain people, you know, because April 4th is right around the corner.
0: That's true. So, and he blogged about this, I believe, last week. It was on Twitter. When he received the letter, he started tweeting about it.
1: Okay. In which case, that's not enough time.
0: No. Okay. So he received the letter this week and they're shutting it down basically a week later. Yep. Yeah. That's that's pretty not good. No. Okay. So don't have a lot of conclusions there. It looks like if this, then that is doing kind of what many platforms do, which is build up services you know, with a developer community to make themselves exciting for end users. And then they kind mm-hmm. of switch the terms because they've got to make money.
1: You put the plumbing in place, let people use it, and then you turn off the spigot. <sighs> so not good.
0: Not good. So we'll stay tuned. We'll come back to this issue again, especially with the user terms, because I really would like to know what's happening with my data. Mm-hmm. All right. On to some some good Better news. stuff. So the August doorbell camera, the video doorbell from August shipped Mine shipped sometime last week and should be here very soon. But I did get a review unit. I, mm. And what would you think? I like it. I have liked this doorbell since I saw it way back in December and thought I was going to, you know, get it back in December. So <laughs> but in implementation, it's good. Some of the reviewers say it's too big for the door frame and it is it's a big square. I know you've got a skinny space, so you may not
1: go for it. Yeah, I do. I, I, I can tell you it will not fit. And, you know, I'm sure it will fit on many people's doors. So
0: it'll fit for me. And it came with a mounting block because my doorbell is not on the same wall as the door. It's gotcha. catty corner to it. I'm like, yep. so I'm saying, is it parallel? Is it perpendicular? It's it's none of the above.
1: In, in um, which case, this is probably a good solution. And you're going to see the side of the person, you know, as they're facing the door, I presume. Well, what
0: they do is they make these little mounts that cant it out at like a 45 degree angle. Mm -hmm. And so August is the only one of all the doorbells that actually comes with one of those, which I thought was nice. It's very easy to install. A lot of people, and I'll just say this, don't be afraid to take your doorbell off and install one of these doorbells. It's about a 15 minute operation. And I have a stucco house. So, you know, I'm talking about drilling into the masonry, but Mm -hmm. your existing doorbell may already fit, you know, so you may not need new holes. You are, if you're doing brick or stucco, going to need the little anchor bolts. But right. it's so easy, you guys. And and yes, there's some wiring to connect, but it's so negligible.
1: Yeah, I mean the wiring essentially, I guess, would be just for power. It's it's actually capturing video and such over Wi-Fi. I assume we're yes. Yeah, so you're not you're not wiring a video feed in a sense. You're just wiring another, essentially, another doorbell.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if people are like, because I know some people are like, oh, I don't want to install it. I'm going to hire someone for like a hundred bucks, and I'm like, hey, I don't know if i do that. And it's not just because I'm handy, because I'm not that handy. <laughs> like, you just take off your doorbell and you'll see. But yeah. make sure you have another doorbell to replace it, because you're going to want to clock that sucker.
1: Yeah. Okay. This is the $199?
0: It's $199. All yeah. right. And it has a wonderful HD camera. It's unlike the others. This has more of a square view as opposed to the long ways view or mm-hmm. landscape view. You can see... So clearly during the day at night, it's maybe not as good of quality as the skybell at night, but I found that it's a little bit more reliable on the notification side and making sure that when some when motion happens or doorbell press happens, it lets you know, and then it's faster to load, which are the things I, I look for. It took about two seconds to resolve the video feed when I'm in the house.
1: Not bad. And there's no service or anything that you have to pay for, no no monthly fee. And the only reason I asked is because it will actually, if I recall, it'll record every single interaction and you can replay those.
0: It does. The cloud service isn't set up yet.
1: Ah. I believe
0: that's coming, but right now it it does not have anything like that. There's no fee associated with it. And there won't ever be a fee to like see a certain like up to a certain number of days of history.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, and, but, but they will have that. Okay, I see it now. Coming soon in an August app update. Okay. Yes. Okay, but, and it won't cost you anything. Beautiful.
0: Well, the service to yeah, eventually, yeah. like 30 days worth of recording will probably cost you money. Oh. If that makes sense. But accessing yeah. it for a certain amount of time.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: And I haven't tried this. I'll have to go look and let, y'all guys, let you guys know. But I know that in the Ring doorbell, you can actually download videos from the doorbell and store them yourself. Hmm. So, yeah, that is pretty handy. So if you have a ring, you can do that. But you, if you have a ring, you may already know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One would hope.
0: So so that's the August doorbell cam. I'm excited. I think it's the most beautiful of all the doorbell cams out there, just from a pretty perspective.
1: Yeah, no, design, it's beautiful.
0: So that is that. Um, other things that we've talked about on the previous shows is the June oven.
1: Oh, you love the June oven.
0: I did. I think it's such a fun idea to have like AI for cooking. It's that expertise Internet of Things makes you an expert, um, without actually having to be one. So, Kevin, you wanna say what's going on there?
1: So the company has raised an additional twenty-two and a half million dollars in financing. And for those who are not familiar with the June, it's I, I like this description on, on TechCrunch because I know I've said it before in the past. It's like an easy bake oven for grown-ups. Um although it's going to cost you $1,500. So uh, they raised more money, but did they actually delay this, the launch of this as well? Yeah.
0: So it was going to come actually in June. Now it's going to come out in the quote-unquote holiday timeframe.
1: That's a big change.
0: It is. Well, so here's some things. What they're trying to do here is they've replaced like the typical oven light inside the oven. So the like incandescent kind of style light that you've got with LEDs, mm-hmm. they've put sensors in the feet of the oven. They've also put a GPU and a camera inside. So a camera inside the oven so it can look at the food and the GPU is to do kind of machine learning algorithms. So it can say like, Oh, this is a pork chop. I'm going to totally, you know, cook it this long. So you don't have to know how to cook a pork chop, mm-hmm. but. In talking to people in the home appliance business, so like at Electrolux and Whirlpool, whenever I asked them about that, they were like, yeah, you know, putting LEDs inside of an oven environment is super hard. And some of the stuff they were trying to do in a a camera inside the environment is also super hard Mm -hmm. just to do at production scale. So what I'm wondering is if they kind of realized that what they're attempting may be a little bit. They swallowed more than they could chew.
1: <laughs> oh well, that's that's possible, and, and I'm also wondering. I mean, the idea behind this is the oven will actually know what you've put in it. Yes. So it's not like you have to say, "I'm cooking a pork chop," as you, right. you know, as you just said. And I wonder, algorithmically, are they having challenges there as well? I mean, there's just a vast array of foods you can throw in an oven. I mean,
0: yeah, but the, I mean, with machine learning and deep learning, it's possible mm-hmm. that they've got. That doesn't feel as intimidating to me as some of the actual physical Mm. stuff they're trying to do. And I mean, an LED is a semiconductor. And if you think about putting a semiconductor into an oven and expecting (laughs) it to work.
1: You might end up with sand.
0: So, I mean, and again, I don't know. But what they're doing is hard. It's worthwhile, but hard.
1: in their defense and along the lines of what you're saying the challenges may be, they did say, they said in the statement, that they have decided to work with new manufacturing partners for plastics and cosmetic sh- sheet metal. So it could be supply chain issues, could be product challenges. It's at least partially uh, the reason why this is being delayed.
0: So there we go. But I'm still eagerly awaiting it because I really want to try this puppy out. Um, I hope
1: you get a review, it because if you shell out $1,500 for this,
0: you're going to make fun of me?
1: Uh, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's,
0: let's talk about what we have both <laughs> recently shelled out. Not $1,500, but was it $90? $90? $89.99. $90. Yep, plus tax. So before the show, Kevin and I both received our emails from Amazon saying that our Amazon dot had shipped. Woo!
1: Yay! And arriving Thursday on time.
0: Right. So the Dot is the smaller version of the Amazon Echo that doesn't have the full speaker in it, but should presumably have all the other fancy stuff. So you'll hear more about that on Thursday.
1: And we actually talked about the other product that came out with the Dot, the Amazon Tap. And you got an email from a listener. And you know what? Shame on me for not making the very good point that he made.
0: Yes. So Joe sent me this email. He's like, on a past episode, you asked why someone would order an Amazon Tap. First, portability. We were like all for it. And then second, my wife never wanted an Echo. Too creepy in her opinion So that, because it's always listening. So the tap feature is a great choice for our home.
1: That's a really valid point. I mean, some people don't like the always listening function that's in the Amazon Echo today. And the tap doesn't have that. You press the button when you want it to listen. And I remember saying that takes some of the magic out of it for me. But some people are fine with that. They'd rather give up that magic and be safe and secure, knowing it's not always listening. So it's a really smart, smart observation.
0: So, yeah, Joe, he's keeping his wife happy. And he's one of the people who are like, yes, I'm going to buy a tap. So now we know who those people are. And apparently they listen to our show. So they can't be all bad. Right. Right. (laughs) So also from Amazon. Is this week actually marks the anniversary of the Amazon dash, which we, we don't talk about them much, but those are the, the buttons, the physical buttons that you can affix to things like your Your washing machine, washing machine or your pantry. And you just press it and it will order a new product. Uh, they're specific for one product. So a tide dash will only order you new tides Mm -hmm. from Amazon. So to me, it feels like like the lesser cousin of the Dash fulfillment service, which I think is wicked cool mm. and has like sensors built into things and it orders it when it detects you're almost out. And that's yeah, awesome. This that is I like, like
1: that. I like this. This is nothing more to me than just moving the one click buy button off your phone or tablet and putting it on your physical device.
0: Right. But apparently people like it because Amazon is announcing over a hundred new buttons. So imagine how cluttered your home could be. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I'll so, I'll check the new buttons. Maybe I mean if there's some product that I go through quite a bit, then maybe, but I yeah, don't know.
0: We'll see. Um and usually the way Amazon has done it in the previous year has been you buy the button for like 4.99 and then you get a credit off of your first order of whatever it is that you've purchased mm-hmm. through that button. So, they cost money but
1: eh. you get it back.
0: So, do we want to talk about alcohol?
1: Well, th- yeah, I mean that's something I would reorder. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I wish I had a button for reordering. <laughs> yeah, you you actually tuned me into this something uh this smart wine bottle. It's called a Kuvi. And I've never heard of this before, but it is a Wi-Fi connected bottle. Uh the bottle is not cheap. I think it's 180 dollars if you pre-order. It normally will be priced at $200 and you can use it to actually order refills of wine that will retail for between 15 and $50. So it's, it's Wi-Fi connected. I didn't see how you do the reorder thing. It doesn't oh, sense it.
0: It's it, They do have sensors in the bottle. And okay. then you're supposed to go to the website and pick out the bottles that you want. So they're going to do a recommendation service, kind of like mm-hmm. Amazon. Well, Amazon, Netflix, those kind of companies. So it'll take your taste into account. So if you find a wine you'd like to order, you can actually order it directly through the bottle. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how that would work. Imagine you'd have to decide, like, I really like this one particular one. Mm -hmm. Press go, like a dash button on the bottle.
1: Right, right.
0: But I think it's an interesting delivery model. It's like the razor meets the razor blade model for the Internet of Things, right? Mm -hmm. Except... In this case, the razor is, like, way too expensive. <laughs> so. uh,
1: it's it's interesting how we're seeing a shift towards the ordering process and the purchase of things with, with IoT. Not buying IoT things, but buying everyday things through IoT. You know, we just talked about the dash buttons. This is kind of similar. You literally order the wine right from the wine bottle, the reusable wine bottle, which actually keeps your wine fresh for up to a month as well, so...
0: I think what we're seeing is, I mean, this is a totally legitimate business model, but I think what's going to end up happening is we'll see subsidizing mm-hmm. of the end device after a certain point. So what we're going to get is companies that put out maybe cheaper versions of this, because this wine bottle has a lot going on. It's got sensors, it's got the Wi-Fi, it's got the reordering, and it's also has to be like vacuum sealable for your wine. So that could be incredibly expensive and not worth subsidizing. But I can (laughs) see like I really think having, for example, a coffee maker that like a Keurig or something that is connected and can reorder your pods. Or maybe you have like a Mr. Coffee connected coffee maker and then they do deals with, you know, Folgers and Starbucks and Mm -hmm. Duncan Hines to offer like that is a very viable business model, I think we're gonna start Um, seeing.
1: I agree. And and it takes away a lot of activity from the smartphones and tablets and computers and puts it where you you know you want and use those products you know
0: and the challenge will just be getting the hardware cheap enough and getting people comfortable enough with the business model that the manufacturers of these products will be comfortable subsidizing i'll be curious to see how that works because even like right now with the amazon dash i haven't ordered any because when i look at amazon i'm like Man, their pricing for toilet paper is way too expensive. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, like, taking away my ability to choose, for me, prices kind of trumps convenience there. Mm -hmm. And I imagine for much of America, that is probably still the case. I could be wrong.
1: I would say so. But I think over time, millennials growing up and so on, convenience will be more of a, a, a purchasing decision.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Procter & Gamble is doing, they experimented with this with their Air Fresh. They have a connected Febreze plug-in thing. Mm-hmm. And they're actually experimenting with this model and kind of selling Febrezes. I don't think they're selling it directly through the app yet, but that is their plan. So there are big brands who are looking at this and going, huh, maybe mm-hmm. we should get in on this. Hey, anything
1: to sell more products.
0: There you go. Sell more stuff. So while you're drinking your wine from your connected wine bottle, I would love for you guys to do us both a favor and fill out our survey. So it's a very short survey. Won't mm-hmm. take but two minutes, maybe if you're at most, at most depends on how verbose you want to be, mm-hmm. but go to www.iotpodcast.com slash survey and I'll put it in the show notes. And if you guys can take it and let us know about you, that would be awesome. And with that, we should go to our guest who is. Who is it's great. Everyone's going to love it. It's Beau Woods, who is with the Atlantic Council, and we're going to be talking about recommendations that they are making for securing the smart home. Yay. Hi, this is Stacy breaking into the IoT podcast to tell you two things. The first is that I've launched a weekly newsletter devoted to the Internet of Things. And you can sign up for it at stacyoniot.com The second thing is that we're now accepting ads on the IOT podcast. We have packages for big companies and for startups. So if you're interested, please email andrew at iotpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And my guest today is Bo Woods, who's the Deputy Director of the Cyber State Craft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Hey, Bo, how are you?
2: I'm great, Steve. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing so well. So thank you for coming on the podcast this week. You guys have some really exciting news. And by exciting, I mean, slightly terrifying. So let's let's <laughs> talk about what you're doing. You released today a report on security and the smart home,
2: smart home security, security in the home-based Internet of Things. Um, So we looked at a handful of different segments of the smart home environment, those three being uh, home utilities, things like power, uh, electric, gas, uh, metering systems, things where you could potentially save money by using smart home devices. We also looked at uh, home appliances, things like fridges, uh, laundry machines, Your internet-connected toaster or sous vide maker, and then uh, internet-connected or internet of things, security and safety devices, baby monitors, surveillance video cameras, uh, and other things that you buy to make your home safer and more secure for yourself and your family.
0: So the exciting thing about this and why you're on the show this week is because you're part of a group called I Am The Cavalry which is kind of this security researchers working with government and working with industry establishing these frameworks for connected devices, for securing connected devices. And you guys did one on the automobile. You've now done one with the FDA on medical devices, connected medical devices. And this report is the precursor to one on the smart home?
2: Yeah, it's uh, distinct, but not unrelated. So um, I am the cavalry of brief background is uh, like you said a group of security researchers who around uh, and realized that our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure that technology uh, so particularly where that comes to um, human life and public safety type devices such as uh, automobiles medical devices smart homes uh, and some of the public infrastructure planes drains public utilities and now this report Fits into that fairly well, although it's not directly a I am the cavalry uh, framework document. It certainly has a lot of the same hallmarks and markers, uh, particularly when you come to the recommendations. You'll see a lot of familiar faces in there, uh, and it can be used as we, in the future, work on a IoT framework. For cyber safety.
0: Let's go into that because your recommendations, your first recommendation, which is security by design, is something people have talked about forever. Mm. And it's also like, (laughs) I feel like it's the bare minimum, but it's also like basically the standard that a lot of the connected device makers are actually kind of trying to get to today as opposed to like, four years ago when they started building these things. So (laughs) that talks about, I mean, the basic assumption, and I will include in the show notes a link to this document, everyone, but the basic assumption is that you assume that there are going to be people trying to attack your device. So you harden it, you continually test it, and you try to avoid doing like these crazy, tremendous, like lines of code. So you can avoid you know, making overly complicated devices with lots of entry points, basically. From there, you go on and you talk about third-party collaboration, which I read as bug bounties, or at least not suing people who bring security issues to you, right? You guys are pro-bug yeah. bounty.
2: Well, we're, we're pro don't sue people who are trying to help you. Got it. <laughs> I think is a better way to think of it.
0: Okay. And then you've got seven more, and we'll probably talk about most of them. But how are some of these different for the smart home than for automotive and medical devices?
2: One of the major ways in which smart homes environment is different than devices and automobiles uh, is that there can be a lower consequence for failure. Also, you look at some of the economics of smart homes versus medical devices and, and versus automobiles. You've got a lot of really small Kickstarter-sized projects that are maybe $10, 50 $100 in the smart home space there's not a lot of room to add on different security features or security measures uh, or do a lot of other things. So particularly with the two that you identified security by design uh, and third party collaboration, those are things that uh, reduce the need for external dependencies to ensure security of the device itself. At the same time that there are, so at the same time there are Kickstarter sized projects for internet of things there are also Kickstarter-sized projects for Internet of Things security platforms that would be additions to uh, the, the Internet of Things smart homes devices, uh, where you start to see kind of a model, as we have in corporate IT, of let's buy a system uh, and then layer security defenses around it uh, in an additive cost model. In Internet of Things, that really doesn't work for a number of reasons, one of the main ones being that you know there's no home IT staff also If consumers are going to have to buy additional things, they're probably not going to buy the additional things. So you'll just have insecure devices that potentially put consumers at risk. Uh, And third, if consumers believe that these devices are not inherently secure, then it'll induce a crisis of confidence of the type that we've already seen, where people are very, very hesitant to accept Internet of Things connected devices in their homes
0: Okay, let's go back to your number two point, because it's worth teasing apart. What I think you're talking about is the kind of the systems nature of the Internet of Things in the smart home, which is I might buy a hub from one vendor and then connect it to other products. Is that kind of what you were talking about?
2: Yeah, you buy some type of a hub from one vendor connected to other products. You might also have uh, something more like a mesh network where different things connect to different things. Nest might talk to Hugh, but it might not talk to Alexa, for instance.
0: Got it. So that's just not as effective, but unfortunately, that's how we're setting up a lot of our connected homes right now.
2: That's right. It's less effective. It's higher cost, higher maintenance. It requires a higher degree of expertise on the purchaser. And ultimately, I think you're seeing some of the effects of that and of reluctance to buy some of these connected devices or to use the connected features because people don't quite understand it and they don't feel like they are masters of that domain, Uh, nor should they have to be in order to use a you know, a refrigerator. I do security for a living. And yet, I would be hard pressed to adequately secure my fridge, uh, nor would I really want to spend the time securing it.
0: And I am with you. I've got 40 some odd connected devices in my house. And I am like 100% sure that if someone wanted to, they could totally take them over. I'm living totally in this blissful security by obscurity world. I probably shouldn't admit that on the show, but uh, (laughs) that makes sense. And we'll get to kind of demand for these, but I did want to continue going through some of your recommendations first because you've got some really good ones. So the two that kind of really struck, like struck a chord with me were the data protective measures and the informed consent for data use, because most people will concede that the internet of things is about getting data and then, trying to glean insights from that data, whether it's for the company itself, whether it's for the user, both. But we currently have an issue where a lot of people aren't just worried about their security of their devices, they're worried about the privacy of their data. And these kind of points bring that up. So I'm curious, like, why these are in here? How do you really hope to see these resolved?
2: Right. I mean, like you said, it's uh, uh, data privacy is one of the biggest issues with uh, so, these consumer devices from the consumer's perspective, from their point of view. Uh, so, uh, a commitment to preserving the agreed upon trust that consumers have with the companies that they buy these things from, uh, I think is really important. It's a signaling mechanism to the company or to the consumers that we value your privacy as much as you do for whatever varying level and degree that you value it. Uh, and what one of the things that we kind of want to get to here is. It's not necessarily a binary, privacy or no privacy. And it's not necessarily a trade-off that everyone will agree on. Um, Certainly, Facebook doesn't have the same views as uh, privacy guy Bruce Schneier, right? They just never will agree. But if you can set up some situation in which uh, the company and the individual can together jointly negotiate that data privacy domain, I think that's a really good point to be able to get to. Uh, And if we can kind of decouple some of the business model from uh, some of the consumer value, then we can start to see where uh, having a a real privacy conversation on that individual level can really pay off. Uh, So if you have the ability when you're going in to use a device to say, all right, this, I want to be able to have this level of data usage, or I want to be able to agree anytime." Uh, you want to hand over this data to a third party, or I want to have some kind of a say in that. That's a a level of granularity that we don't necessarily have today, but it might be worth having a discussion around that um, for manufacturers to have a way to reassure consumer confidence uh, without essentially imposing a one-size-fits-all, our judgments must suffice for everyone type of a model.
0: How scalable is something like that from a implementation standpoint? And most manufacturers feel like if they do an opt-in kind of model, they'll lose like 80 to 90% of people who would otherwise be part of their kind of data samples. Is that in your experience true? And is it possible to actually implement this without destroying kind of some of the business models?
2: Yeah, you know, I have the feeling that until we try it, We won't really have great data. Uh, Until we have some of this granularity and transparency, we won't be able to figure out whether it's a model that works well in a a scalable fashion. I think that it's a design choice that kind of gets built into your business model uh, in some ways. Uh, And it's it's one that might be kind of scary or risky to some manufacturers. But on the other hand, you can look at it the other way. If you are the only one in the marketplace offering that type of granularity, you might draw in a bigger group of consumers. So I have the feeling that once one or two offer it, several others in the marketplace will start to come about and offer it. And you can see uh, the effects of some of those different trials, some of the different experimentation. Uh, as there's dozens and hundreds and thousands of know uh, things, devices, maybe this can be a competitive differentiator for some of those devices and some of those companies so that somebody might pick their device rather than a different one. I think that, like I said, there's just not enough known yet about some of those choices that people would make if they had them, which I don't think there are any devices today that do have those.
0: There are a couple of devices that allow you not to put your information on the cloud, but you're right. There are very mm-hmm. few, like I, I think I've mentioned them. I know I've mentioned them before, but the welcome cam from Netatmo is a video camera that allows you to keep all of your data inside on an SD card in the device or on your own server at home. And then there's also an up and coming project from Silk Labs called the Sense video camera that does the same thing. So we'll we'll see. Let's kind of Mm -hmm. talk about this because you've got a couple recommendations about we'll call it what happens when the device isn't connected or maybe you go out of business, which I think is a really good one to talk about, especially because in the beginning of the report you bring up the fact that consumers Aren't exactly adopting this stuff in droves like we thought,
2: right? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that we that we found kind of early on in our research is that these aren't other thing sized companies. They go bankrupt all the time, um, or just stop making the device, or maybe they forget to renew the domain name. Uh, and you can have all of these instances where those loss of digital assets really make the device unfunctional. Or if I'm thinking like a criminal and I notice that. Uh, somebody forgets to renew their domain name or they go out of business, might go and snatch that domain name up and then just push out an update that will do something that the the customer has not agreed to, right? So uh, having some kind of a capability to operate when the company has gone under, when the uh, domain isn't reachable, when you send out an update that uh, somebody might not um, necessarily want to apply, uh, thinking about those types of things, It's really important, and it's an important, again, a commitment to your customer on how you will treat them. I think one of the interesting dimensions that you've brought up before in past shows is changing an arbitration clause and bundling that along with some type of an update to a system. I think that's especially the case when you have something like a, a change in a binding arbitration clause or a functionality update that might be bundled with something much more essential, much more important, where you want a high degree of adoption and uptake, and you want to separate out those two different pieces, the two different goals or choices for the consumer, so that if they don't agree to a new arbitration clause, they can still agree to the change in terms of service for the feature set that they're updating. Okay.
0: Okay. No, I I totally agree. And so I have a couple quick questions for you. One being, as someone who's got to deal with updates, I find that one of the most agonizing thing is firmware updates, like, around my connected devices. So, like, I go to, like, open the app to control my lights to set, like, dinner party lighting, and it's like, firmware update required, you know, and I'm like, ah, nuts. So (laughs) do you have any advice for people about when they should try to update something that is... I don't want to say it's always on because it's not, but it's not the sort of thing where you're like, oh, I really want to do this right now.
2: In, I think in a perfect world, updates would be seamless. Uh, There wouldn't have to be some decision-making process on the part of the the customer. It would just happen and nothing would change except for beneficial things. You get extra features to play with, which you could then read about later. Uh, The reality, I think, is right now there are enough problems that we've seen in some of these app updates or the firmware updates. That it really should be something that the customer decides whether or not they want to have that update. I mean, you can imagine uh, coming back from a long trip, you come in and none of your lights work because
0: there was an update. update
2: that automatically applied itself. So, yeah,
0: right. Okay, and final question for you before I let you go: Do you have connected devices in your house?
2: I do not. I've spent the last. Four years without a permanent home, uh, moving about every one to, to six months in different parts of the world. So I unfortunately don't have much of a home to connect.
0: Okay, that was the saddest answer ever. <laughs> 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 well, would you have any connected devices?
2: Absolutely. I'm not sure what they would be because I haven't been shopping for them, but I would absolutely pick up a, some type of a connected device if I saw a really good reason to, a really good benefit to do it. Uh, I don't know what's out there today that would substantially add value to my life uh, I think some of the value that's going to come from these things is integrating six eight ten different things with some type of an online profile with you know a daily calendar uh, and then getting some of the benefits in that way so to some degree you know you might ask whether you can just have one it's like the old Lay's potato potatoes right you can't eat just one you can't have just one smart home device and realize a lot of benefits from it. You have to get multiple uh, and bring them together for the uh, the network effects.
0: Which brings us back to one of the original problems that we talked about. So we'll have to hope that people read this document and change their ways. Bo, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: Thank you, Stacy.
0: That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be back next week. And if you can't get enough Internet of Things news, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at stacyoniot.com.